bum bum bottom 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 bum
the idea is still generating and it's still kind of, I'm still processing it in the back of my mind. Do you want to go ahead and tell our listeners what you have come up with for your sketch cover for Four Color Fantasies Literacy uh, Charity Auction? Sure. I came up with this cover to get around certain artistic limitations that I have. <laughs> they are sketches because they are pictures, but I'm not like this like amazing, impressive artist. Yeah, but it's a sketch also. A sketch doesn't imply like fine art. It yeah, I know. It implies a sketch. Uh, but like, I go like, here are my limitations. I can't really do shading. <laughs> that's, that's one thing I need to work on. Um, and I can't really draw human faces very well. <laughs> but I do have some strengths. Um, one, I'm a silly goose. Yes. So if I do something funny, nobody's going to think that I'm trying to make fine art. And um, and I've thought about the character of Batman a lot. Uh, particularly recently, Brad and I read the Batman vampire series, Red Rain, which climaxes, spoiler alert, if you haven't read it, I guess, but it climaxes with Alfred sacrificing his own blood to the vampire Batman. And it got me thinking about like how familial their relationship is sure. and how much downtime they actually have together to build this bond. So my cover is a silly moment between Batman and Alfred while Alfred is bringing Bruce a tray with a beverage on it. And when he walks in, Batman has his costume, cowl and all, on backwards. <laughs> so that like out of the mouth of the cowl, like the back of his hair is sticking out and it's sticking out of the eye holes. Batman goes like, look, Alfred, I'm back, man. And Alfred bursts into laughter. It's it's so it's so stupid and delightful. If you have not seen it, please I'm go to Lisa's Twitter. I'm stupid proud of it. Like, I, as soon as I posted it, I was like, this is it. I'm going viral, which it has not gone. No, it hasn't gone viral. It has not gone viral. <laughs> We're going to continue to promote it because the charity auction isn't for a while. You know, what Four Color Fantasies does is really fantastic. They uh, gather astounding artists like Lisa, like <laughs> Alex Mayleave. I love the idea that your art is next to Alex Mayleave, Daniel Warren Johnson. Uh, we're going to have the, the the boys from Four Color Fantasies on the show at, when we're closer to the release of the charity. Uh, but what 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 the, what the charity is, is the Literacy Volunteers Winchester, uh, and they basically get money together so that they can advance essential literacy skills for adults and families through education and advocacy. It's a really great local charity that we're proud to sponsor. They encouraged Lisa to partake in it this year, and I'm just so glad that Lisa did. And I, like I said at the beginning of this episode, I think it's because we've been talking to all these really cool people, and you have been like really jazzed this month by these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Though I am super excited to get back to our regular format. Yeah. But I like our regular format is very labor intensive. So it's been nice to like have a little bit of breathing room to gear up for our next four part series because it's going to be a doozy and I am so 
renewed and excited yeah, to get I to mean, it. I mean, I've been wanting to cover that couple for a long time. And now that we're starting to explore their relationship, I'm just really giddy about it. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it on the outro. Uh, we mentioned who the couple was before. We'll, we're going to get into it after we get done with this chat with Alex DeCampi. I want you guys to get really excited about the conversation you're going to hear right now. Alex DeCampi is one of our favorite writers. Uh, we talked about her book that she did with Erica Henderson last year, Dracula Mother a lot. Mm -hmm. And if you have not read that comic book, you need to do so. It is a masterpiece. I don't use that word lightly, but I, I just think it's a fact. And she's also the writer behind the Archie versus Predator comics, which I adore. She's done a collaboration with Duncan Jones, the director of Moon, called Maddie, Once Upon a Time in the Future. And now she has Full Tilt Boogie from 2000 AD with artist Eduardo Ocaña, and Lisa calls it a masterpiece in this conversation to Alex DeCampi. I, I, I tell her it could be a masterpiece once the story is continued, which is a terrible thing to say to an artist. <laughs> like, oh, you have something really special. Don't mess it up. I, but like, it, when, <laughs> it's so good. When you're reading the comic book, you will get the tingles that mm -hmm. you get when you are reading something truly special. Uh, the book comes out on May 11th. Uh, here's like the, the basic description taken right off the back of the trade. Uh, pedal to the metal. T, her grandmother, and her cat are wannabe bounty hunters, odd jobbing across the galaxy in their ship, the full tilt boogie, constantly on the lookout for the bigger, better payday. But when they break a narcissistic prince out of jail, they accidentally spark an intergalactic war. Suddenly, T finds herself chased across the universe by sacred knights and unstoppable undead warriors. Planet conquering, prince rescuing, and ramen eating, it's all in a day's work for the crew of the Full Tilt Boogie. If you can't tell from the description, Full Tilt Boogie is anime inspired. And if you're familiar with Alex DeCampi's work, she likes to plant herself in a genre mm. and use that as kind of a lens through which she sends her creativity and her imagination. And it kind of reminds me of, I don't know how she would feel about this comparison, but Quentin Tarantino, where there are like two kinds of creativity. There is uh, spring creativity and there is sponge creativity where um, she and Quentin Tarantino are like cultural sponges. They like soak up everything around them. They become like almost like walking encyclopedias yeah. of the media they have consumed. What you'll hear in this chat is the delight in which Alex DeCampi takes in twisting genre ideas and tropes. Mm -hmm. And uh, Full Tilt Boogie definitely does that in a variety of different ways. Just like Tarantino, as you're saying, you know, Tarantino's like, oh, I'm gonna do my spin on the Western. But in that spin on the Western, you're gonna find a spin on Kung Fu films and Roger Corman movies and, you know, various other forms of exploitation. But you'll also find something that is entirely new. So like, it's not a matter of, derivation mm. or anything like mm. that. It's just like, okay, I'm fluent in all of these languages and I'm going to speak to you in all of these languages in a way that you can absorb and understand. And it's incredibly character-based. Mm. You know, you get into the heads of these these folks. Uh, you'll, you'll want to hang out with the Full Tilt Boogie crew. Absolutely. And you'll want to hang out with Alex DeCampi because she is just a burbling font 
of recommendations. So you're yeah. going to want to take some notes. Yeah. You're going to want to pause and take a breath. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, Alice the Campy was only scheduled to give us like 30 minutes and she gave us a lot more of her time. So, so generous. Our thanks and our heart goes out to her for that. Uh, so without further ado, uh, let's 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 talk to Alex the Campy. Alex, thank you so much for joining us at Comic Book Couples Counseling. We are crazy excited to have you here on the show. It's a true honor and a privilege. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I'm delighted to be here, even if I am a bit late. <laughs> no worries, no worries. As I said, and our listeners can get a peek behind the uh, curtain, I did not send out a courtesy reminder email, and I feel like a trash person for having not done that. Uh, but you're here uh, okay, now. No, no, we're, most... we're, we're doing trash confessions. It's because I had a hangover from staying up late and watching Mortal Kombat, a movie <laughs> that is only aided by alcohol. Yeah, and we came down on Alex and Brad, pro-Mortal Kombat, Lisa not not a fan. Not yet. She couldn't finish it. <laughs> I think the most yeah. important was, thing is the, uh, the lateness is not my fault. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Um, so you are killing it in 2021. You have Full Tilt Boogie, The Backups, Heartbreak Incorporated, and Campaigns and Companions. And I'm super impressed that you could make time for us at all because if I were you... My schedule would be full of me just high-fiving myself constantly. And, like, and you seem to always have like several projects going on at the same time. Like, How do you juggle all of that? Um, occasionally quite poorly. Um, I mean, I also have a full-time job and I'm a single mom. So like, <laughs> a lot of the projects you see, they're like all of those 2021 projects, they're all finished. You know, mm -hmm. Campaigns and Companions is the only one that's not at the printer yet, and it goes to the printer, like, next week. Like, I'm done with it. Nice. Um, and I was editing that book. Like, the, the real talents there are, are Andy and Brianna and, and, and Cal. Um, I just kind of herded them um, and did some layout work. Um, you know, I, t I tend not to do monthly comics um, just because it's – it's not like it's not the way I read comics. Um, so I, I write things for myself to consume in a way. Um, and so I do larger graphic novel projects. And the thing about working on large graphic novels is we we take it really easy. Like we we you know like the books the book's going to be done when it's done. Like everyone gets paid. Like my artists are always paid to, when they turn in their pages. That's that's why it sometimes takes me longer to get things out there because I have to find someone who's going to help me pay for my my team. Um, so, you know, we, we, we gently make these large books and then once they're ready, we publish, we have them published. Um, and that can, that can occasionally mean it's like there are no buses and then there are three buses. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> like three different publishers are like, oh, well, this is all going to happen now. And then I have, you know, a, a starting a, a prose writing career, you know, Heartbreaking Corporate is my second novel. I have not started my third novel and this causes me a great deal of anxiety. Um, cause you're supposed to like, you know, when your second novel's out, you're supposed to have your third novel written and like on sub. And I have not done that. <laughs> I, have not, I, I have not even, I have the research books for it. Um, so, you know, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm quietly almost constantly busy on my own projects. Um, and you know, I initiate them and produce them and, letter them and, you know, just generally do all the project management as well as the writing. Um, the only project I really didn't, well, the, I didn't initiate Campaigns and Companions because that was Andy Ewington's idea. Mm -hmm. um, 
and I didn't um, uh, initiate Maddie because that was that was Duncan coming to me going let's make you know, let, let's make a book and I'm like all right um, and then I had this giant book dropped in the middle of my schedule which for 18 months kind of just walloped me mm-hmm. <laughs> it was such a it was such a it was such a task it was a great task I loved it I think it came out really beautifully but it was it was a lot to do. It was a 260 page graphic novel. I mean, we're, you know, we're all my, like, I seem to not do anything less than 250 pages these days. But yeah. that's, I like it. It's nice. You can lose yourself in it. It feels like value. You can get the book in the mail easily. Um, so, yeah, and, and I'm doing stuff for 2000, 2080, which I really enjoy. It's, it's, it's kind of a great honor to be working for them. They're, they're the only, you know, uh, non you know, like they're the only publisher I'm working with right now who's publishing my work in like in, in serial serialized form mm-hmm. I mean beyond beyond panel syndicate which you know Ryan and Dee and I gently finish a chapter of bad karma every couple of months and put it up there but that's not like panel syndicate isn't giving us deadlines like I just hand Marcos a chapter when it's done and say hey mate when you get a chance to do it around your deadlines and your family schedule would you mind putting it on the site? He goes, sure. <laughs> and that's that. I um, love the, so. the the idea of gentle publication, just like really gently being completely frantic, but gently all of the time. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. I mean, it's, you know, I've, I've been publishing for a while and I made this deliberate choice to just to make the experience of creating books as pleasant as possible for myself and Mm -hmm. all of my co-creators. So, you know, we set deadlines based on, um, based on them, basically based on when they can go gladly forth to the table and, and, and create work in a way that doesn't, you know, overwhelm their other commitments and their family time and they're still making money and et cetera. And how did you land on that philosophy? Um, I mean, part of it was because I didn't see any value in writing other people's IP. Um, and so I had to be creating my own. And then there's no, you know, there's no, the graphic novel market is so weird. And I, and I like books. I mean, I, I really came into, you know, I I got it back into comics through 2000 AD and through some of the old Vertigo stuff. But like a friend of mine was moving out of Wellington Barracks in London when I was living there. He handed me like a box of books, like all these 2000 ADs and all these Vertigo monthlies and just said, you look like someone who would enjoy comics. I can't take these with me on deployment. Here you go. Womp. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it was just like, <laughs> like 30 pounds of books. <laughs> um, and, but what really got me wanting to write comics um, was reading Naoki Urasawa's Monster, which I had to read in French because um, back then, and this was like 15 years ago, um, Naoki Urasawa's work wasn't really translated into English yet because mm-hmm. it was it was in the middle of the big like Tokyo pop manga boom, so like it was all like teen stuff and shonen and like talking animals and shit, and like it wasn't bringing like the there wasn't a great presence in English of the more sophisticated, like, adult enjoyment. And I, I, adult enjoyment sounds like porn. There, <laughs> there, there, wasn't, there wasn't much of that either. Um, and there's still a lot of gaps in what gets translated. I mean, Hideshi Hino, who's one of the greatest horror writers ever and influenced everybody else in Japan, like, he's not available in English mm-hmm. right now. There's no current print. Um, uh, so I started reading Monster, and I was like, wow, this is, this is I, I get this. I get the visual storytelling 
Kurosawa uses, I get the sophistication of the story. This is just an exercise in serial portraiture, and I find, and then the characters die, and I find it incredibly fascinating and gripping. So that made me want to actually write comics. I realized there was someone who was writing the kind of stories I wanted. Um, but of course, you know, in 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 outside of Japan, we get manga in collected form only. Hmm. So I, I was used to these like collected books, and that and that's how I just prefer to read. Um, and so that's what I started creating. Um, and you know, the, the the mainstream, like, I mean, sure, would it be fun to write like? Captain America or Iron Man or, 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 I don't know, you know, Batman at some point, probably sure, but you know, it would, would require a lot of effort. It doesn't pay very well. Hmm. And then a company goes and makes a billion dollar movie based on your comic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We've and been talking lucky, about that a lot. Apart. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I mean, if, the thing is no writer is wrong in the way they choose their career. The folks out there writing like, like Matt Rosenberg, like folks like that who just, who just write IP now, like bless them. That's what they want to do, and they're happy. And that's that's that is the absolute correct choice for them. Um, and they do a great job at it. I would probably not be good at the monthly grind. I I get extremely stressed out when when having to write too much because I'm very meticulous. Um, and then I like to letter it, and they wouldn't want that. And I like to have you know a direct relationship with my artists, and they don't do that. So like, there's a whole bunch of the way mainstream comics works that I that just doesn't suit my personal working style. Mm. But there are a lot of other people who are doing an amazing, amazing job at it and are happy doing it. And I'm glad that they have found their happiness. Um, and I have found mine. And so like everybody's kind of good. Like the, the industry is much larger than you think. And like people can self-select towards the style of working that makes them happiest. Some people, like I say, it, it makes them happy to, you know, be going up the ladder and to finally be writing the X-Men or finally be writing like Superman or, you know, from starting off with C-list characters. And some people want to write for the YA market. Some people love web comics. You know, I like writing big, chunky, sophisticated graphic novels. It's so interesting that you mentioned Urasawa because just two weeks ago we had Rob Williams, another uh, 2000 AD writer on the show, and uh, he got me reading 20th Century Boys, which is what I'm currently like obsessing over, utterly loving it. I, I always I always say Pluto is the first Urasawa people should read because it's, it's short. It's like five volumes. Yeah. Um, 20th Century Boys 20th Century Boys isn't my favorite one. Um, for me, it probably goes Pluto and then Monster. I mean, Monster will always have a special place in my heart because it was like, you know, we all have that like one album that was like our breakup sad times album mm-hmm. when we were teenagers. And like you kind or, or, or that one movie we're kind of weirdly old movie that we're all weirdly obsessed with. Mm-hmm. And like you kind of don't want to recommend it to other people because you don't know if it's like empirically great or it just was so meaningful at a particular point in your life. Sure. <laughs> Um, and you know, I mean, Urasawa is empirically great, folks. Like, go read Urasawa. But you know, Monster for me is is one of his one of my absolute favorite works of his, especially because it hit me so hard when I as 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 a complete left turn from what was the storytelling that was going on in, in U.S. mainstream comics at the time. The challenge I've had with Pluto is getting a copy because I don't want to start reading it until I can get every single volume. And a lot of those uh, have uh, gone out of print or in the process of being reprinted. Yeah, and there's, there was like there was a, there was a, either like a warehouse fire or a printer fire or something at Biz, oh. and th- so the reprint situation for a lot of manga is a disaster right now. And Viz, like Viz and Kodansha know it, like like all the, they, like they know it. There's just nothing they can do about it. Mm. You know, they're they're like 
I can, you know, logistics, and I know this from running two Kickstarters during a pandemic and, and delivering on both of them, the logistics of getting books from the printer across an ocean to uh, to people is has been an absolute fucking disaster. You know, mm. it's just been like there's been there's been a cardboard box shortage because, of course, we're all ordering everything online now. Mm. There's been shipping container shortages. There was Brexit, which meant a whole bunch of stuff was like stuck on one side of a border and couldn't get back onto the other, like trucks, containers, yada, yada. You know, there was fucking ever given who, 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 who squished her fat self in the, in, in, in the Suez Canal. Like, luckily I, I didn't have any books on ships at that point. So <laughs> I could just point and laugh, but like, I, was, I felt really bad for everybody. It's like looking at all those dots of ships, wondering how many of them had, had books that people were waiting to get delivered. Um, you know, so it's been, it's been just fuck wild. Oh, and you know, ports were shutting down or on, you know, because of, because of COVID lockdowns. In, in, you know, in longshoremen and warehouse workers, like just to keep themselves safe, we're having to work, you know, getting maybe 20 percent of the work they'd normally get done in a day done. And so things were just backing up and backing up. So the logistics during a pandemic has been just crazy. Um, but the but, long and know, short I, of it is I'm getting Pluto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're getting Pluto like it, they will reprint it as soon as they can. It's just there's there's just a lot going on right now with with the American manga scene and getting reprints done. Oh, that's good. Like I had, I had not even heard that story, but it totally makes sense. And it makes me feel better about that being not available to me. Cause I did find it strange. Uh, now, now yeah. I do want to talk about the 2080 book that you have coming up. It's the one we're most excited about. It comes on May 14th. I believe it's full tilt boogie. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, I, I, and, and maybe it's because I read your introduction and your introduction says you were inspired by anime shows like uh, battle of the planets and, um, star blazers, uh, star yeah. blazers. Yeah. Yes. And so when I start reading it, I immediately see that, but can you talk about taking that inspiration and really wanting to make your version of that type of narrative? Um, well, I mean, I grew up as when I, I was a latchkey kid, so I get home and um, watch um, uh, Star Blazers and Battle of the Planets, which are uh, respectively um, Gotcha Man and Space Battle Cruiser Yamato, but like bad English dubs where they actually change some of the plot for unknown reasons. Um, but those were the cartoons I would watch. Um, I was a little bit like pre Robotech, um, or I, like or it was on at a different time. I think I watched a bit of it. Um, and I just loved these like giant space epic quests um, with like kind of some absurdity and some magic to them. Um, and uh, you know, as as often with things that we hold on to is from, from 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 a young age, you know, I'd always wanted to return to that. Um, and there was just a time, and I I kind of started developing it a little bit with Ed actually as a as a pitch for the French market. Um, you know, some of the original ideas had had actually started off via a conversation with Dan McDade, like like what if we just did like Hawkman but awesome? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and then you know, when I say like what like you know what what if what what if I do this licensed property but awesome? Like it ends up something so wildly like aside from it. By the time I'm like I got to fix this and I got to fix this and what if we do that and let's make this more interesting and like fuck canon. Um, so then, then we end up with something, then we end up with like the character of the black dog in, 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 um, 
ultimately in Full Tilt Boogie, um, but via a journey of many, many, many steps. I mean, like, you know, Bad Karma is very much what if I took Hell's Kitchen Movie Club and and did the road trip of vengeance story I always wanted to do with those two characters. And then I changed the characters so much because I'm like, you know, like, this, this is why I really have to die. Like, that's just dumb. I'm sick of stories being built on the backs of dead bodies. And like, what if they really had consequences and could get injured? And, like, and then out of that, by a journey of, of many, many, many steps came Bad Karma, which is essentially entirely its own thing and had nothing to do with, like, Bucky or The Punisher. Um, Hell's Kitchen Movie Club was a, was a web comic, I, Twitter comic I did with some friends for a while, which was basically, um, the idea was that, like, nobody will watch, like, action movies with with Frank Castle or Bucky Barnes, so they have a movie club where they go watch action movies and get drunk. Um <laughs> Because, like, everyone's like, don't get triggered, they have PTSD, they're really violent, and they're just sitting there watching things, like, making fun of, you know, bad action movies. Um, and then it ended up being this weird comic about, like, the experience of PTSD and, 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 and forgiveness and, like, all these other things that started off, like, you know, lol, let's have them watch Rambo. Um, so, and that became a comic called Bad Karma, which you can download uh, for free on Panel Syndicate. There's, like, 140 pages of it. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a Shane Black-style buddy comedy action film um about doing the right thing but rather badly all the best ones um, yep um and um yeah with, with two disabled characters i took a lot of that william goldman idea of you know take the least likely person and make them the hero but you know from like marathon man and mm-hmm. stories like that um and that's much more fun Oops. and that's my foster dog oh. um Whose name is whose name is Milu, which is the name of Tintin's dog. Milu, shh, sorry. Um, uh, you know, um, what was I saying before Milu started barking at me? Yeah, you were wrapping um, up bad karma. Oh yeah. Um, and then we were talking about uh, inspiration. Oh yeah, William Goldman. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, the, the, yeah. I find I find the William Goldman take of like having like you know, almost not incompetent, but like really unlikely heroes who aren't obviously able to do the thing much more interesting than something like extraction where it's like, Oh, he's a lone wolf who goes and shoots brown people. And I'm Mm. tired now. And that was, yeah. I mean, um, that was something we just didn't want to do because, yeah, if you really like, one of the things I do a lot in my storytelling, and we'll come and we can we'll flip around eventually to full tilt boogie on this, <laughs> is um, I I look at the framework of how we create particular genres of stories because I'm a huge genre fan, um, and I do yeah, I do this like this on a serial basis in my work. I mean, Dracula Motherfucker is an absolutely prime example of this. You know, like how do we tell the Dracula story? How do we tell? The, the white guy with a gun, you know, like action hero, military action hero story. Like, what are the things that people always do that if we just, you know, if we just interrogate them a little bit, we can make a story feel really fresh and interesting by both acknowledging what we traditionally do and then, like, kind of twisting on it. So rather than, um, you know, sending a, 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 a lone wolf white guy whose wife has probably died in some horrible way and, and he carries the guilt with that him forever um, to like a foreign country where he like rescues, rescues a boy and then shoots a bunch of Brown people. What, what if, what, and, and the country is bad and oppressive and dirty and crime filled. Um, what if we took that and put it in America and had the wife not dead, 
but just an ex-wife, but you knew she was like, but you knew this woman like ran their lives. <laughs> like, <laughs> and the reason that ex-husband is falling apart is no longer running his life because she was like enough. Um, and then she has to come back and run their life. <laughs> um, and what if, what if all this is happening in America? What if we're seeing some of the techniques that America uses against, uh, you know, countries were being imperialistic about such as drone strikes what if that happens in america what if we start doing these doing these you know, these mm. these these uh special ops tactics against other americans like it suddenly starts feeling really uncomfortable um but also not too far-fetched which should concern everybody mm. um you know and what if what if the two you know military guys with guns what if their objective is to not kill anybody you know they're trying they're trying their hardest to use non-lethal force uh, throughout all of it. So like you're not dropping bodies. Um, so like how do you continue? How do you make that story interesting? Like how do you how do you keep the reader's attention and and keep the keep the tension level high when you can't just you know pen in an orgy of violence here or there um, with lots of like like bodies falling. Um, so that was, you know, that was, that was bad karma. And like my Mayday books, which, which I'm about to start lettering the sequel on, you know, that was like, well, <clears throat> what is a spy, but a terrorist in a suit? Mm-hmm. You know, if you put James Bond in a hoodie and you made him brown, that would be a whole different film. You, you <laughs> like to contrast yourself, like your writing style with like intellectual property, like working for like a Marvel or a DC, um, just because, uh, like, like to write for a Marvel and a DC just takes a completely different type of like fluency in those worlds. But you seem to have a fluency in like so many genres, and like, is it some like where does your flu- fluency in so many genres come from? And how like how do you relate them back to your last child? Your lots and lots of bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> No, seriously, Channel 29 in Philadelphia, before it was the Fox station, used to run any old movie, like, during the, like, time between when I got home from school and when my parents got home. Mm -hmm. So, like, I just watched all sorts of stuff. I have, you know, I've grown up on, like, Sam Peckinpah films and, like, Mm -hmm. westerns and, um, you know, all the, like, old war films, uh, you know, Guns and Navarone, etc. Dirty Dozen, you know. Yeah. Um, So... I mean, just that's that's where a lot of my story inspiration comes from. Um, not really from other comics. I mean, I see things people do, and I'm like, ooh, that's, that's the interesting kind of layout. I'm going to steal that, or like, ooh, that's a that's a nice bit of pacing, or that's a, that's a nice trick. So I steal tricks from other people, but I don't really like. There are very few comics writers where I'm like, wow, that work is so amazing. I'm, you know, I really wish I could write something like that. You know. Um, in the introduction, I mean, in the introduction, you also mentioned that along with like anime, that this is your that um, full tilt boogie is your ode to like non symmetrical loving families, and I love that term non symmetrical in in reference to a family. Can you define can you define that a little further and how it applies to your life and also the life of T and her family? Well, I mean. You know, I am a single mom. Mm-hmm. Um, I take care of my own mother, which is where this, where, where, why grandma is in there. Because uh, my mom, my father died of, of cancer, and my mom um, isn't very well. Um, and so I, I, like, there's no one else in the family to, like, look after her or sort her stuff out. So I've had numerous times in my life where 
my desires to go and live somewhere or do a thing had been completely sideswiped by family issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, having to move back to my, I, mean, I remember like just when my first, like No Mercy and uh, was announced, um, I was flying back from, you know, was it Emerald City or something, like, you know, one of the conventions up, up, up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and I was in the car on the way home and my mom had a stroke. And that was the beginning of like, well, you know, <laughs> well, this is your life now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, I think there's a whole bunch of like wild adulting that happens in your 40s when you start having to take care of your own parents. And at the same time, you're taking care of your own children and you may or may not like, you know, have a partner. Um, I do not. Uh, I misplaced mine um, mm-hmm. deliberately. Um <laughs> <laughs> we're friendly. It's, it's, it's fine, but <laughs> we are no longer married. <laughs> um, uh, and, um, you know, so a lot of your life has to be spent living for and dealing with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know, someday I'm going to write about the year. I, I like my mom really had to finally be put into, um, a care home and having to, um, to, you know, go through her stuff and figure out what to do with all of it. You know, I live in Manhattan. She had, she had like a big house in rural Maine, lots of space, lots of stuff, never gone through it. Um, and that was, that was some, that was wild. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I tend to reflect that a lot in my books. I mean, I'm a, I'm a great believer in the found family trope. Um, you know, I mean, like every anime is like, what if the real victory was the friends we made along the way? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, yes, it's so true. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm also someone who's I'm someone who's moved around a lot over their lives, so like I I get very I, I'm get I'm able to make friends easily, and I tend to keep those friends because it became a survival measure when you're in a new place and don't know anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this non-symmetrical families for me is like you know you think of the the, the, the nuclear family of like you know man woman children, etc. Um, but there are also like woman, woman, children. There's also like woman, child, man, child, like, you know, there's, there's all these different definitions of family that don't necessarily get portrayed as, um, successful and loving in, in fiction very much. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of tropes about single moms is a lot, you know, you don't see a lot of children taking care of parents in fiction, um, which is something that is increasingly happening. Um, you know, I know people who were raised by their grandparents um, very successfully. You know, I think I think it's important to show different sorts of families um, and that different sorts of families can be successful. I mean, like, if, if you want to, like, guarantee to leave me an absolute sobbing wreck, the movie that does it is Lilo and Stitch. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like even thinking about the whole like you know it, it's small and broken yeah. line from Stitch is like I'm sobbing now. Destroys so, yeah. every time. <laughs> Destroys. I know. <laughs> little girl who loves Elvis and her like deadly alien friend is like how how dare how dare do that to me? Um, so you know the, those those telling those sorts of stories about families that are um, not the the stereotypical family but are in fact quite common. Um, are really important to me. Um, so when you are, you know, setting out on this journey with Full Tilt Boogie and you've got this idea in your head and how you want to, f- you know, f- uh, flip the idea a little bit based on how it's been presented in the past, like what is the early process of developing that looking like for you? 
Oh, gosh. Um, I develop stories very slowly. So it's just a lot of notes scribbled in a notebook until they start making sense. I mean, I'll often start with a couple of characters. Um, and then I have to figure out where they go and build the world around them. I'm very much a character writer. Mm -hmm. So it's the people um, that I start with. And then the plot in the world is almost determined by the people. Um, that makes me tend to stay away from science fiction because so much of science fiction is world building. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's why you don't see a ton of science fiction books for me. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm like the kind of, you know, my holy grails for storytelling is like, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which is four people in a room for two hours. Like it just doesn't need anything else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of, um, and so I kind of tend to forget to give people superpowers or bells and whistles <laughs> that a lot of comics writers do. Cause I'm like, well, I can just, you know, if I make this person a certain way and, and put these obstacles in their path, that's the, that's the story, you know, that's all I need to do. Um, and, uh, so I wanted to make the canvas total boogie for me was it was a way of cre trying to create on a very, very large canvas um, and also trying to be a little bit free about it because I, I do overthink my stuff. I am too meticulous. You know, I, I hear about comics writers who do monthly books who don't really have a plan for what the next issue is and like that that's terrifying to me. Like, how do you not know where you're going? Mm -hmm. <laughs> how do you the end is because then don't you want to go take stuff at the beginning like I, I can't write like that mm -hmm. and so I have enormous respect for, for writers who are you know folks like Matt Fashion who are that improvisational um, and leave that much to chance um, in their writing I can't I can't do that it's terrifying to me um, so I was trying to just be freer and be bigger and and also just like have fun stuff happen I mean um like the thing about Star Blazers and, and, and Battle of the Planets is they're fun. You know, there's cool stuff that happens. Like they have great clothes. Like it's just a lot of like it's and, and it's kind of uplifting as well. Um and I was and I was this was supposed to be an all ages book, so I also had lots of restrictions like you can't show blood and mm -hmm. <laughs> um and so working within that, you know, I came up with a small group of people and then, and then I wanted to have an opposing group of people, uh, from who, uh, who were, you know, essentially a super Sentai group, um, <laughs> somewhat like Gotcha Man, um, and these kids who, who this. but also I wanted to make it a little bit dark because I'm never, you know, as, as a fan of things like, um, Madoka Magica, which was a wonderful short anime, um, which totally de deconstructed the, the whole magical girl thing in a brilliant brilliant way um you know the whole like you know step through this portal shaped like you and then get quasi-magical powers it's like kind of a scary thing mm -hmm. um and uh i wanted to show that from the kid's point of view and then you know there's a deepening in the second arc that i'm writing now of the history that's going on and you, you really find out what's uh, there's a whole bunch of surface things we address in in the first arc and the book that's coming out in May and in the second arc which will start in the autumn because I'm I my deadline's just I, I it's like a year late it's so bad I I'm not I'm never late but but dude dude Maddie killed my schedule <laughs> take the time that you need and not to scare you but like reading this first arc of full tilt boogie the combination of your characters and imagination and Okana's art feels like the beginning of a masterpiece to me. Like, I am so excited. 
And I, I was just wondering, like, what is it? What was it like working with Okana, Okanya, um, versus with, with other Ed? artists? Um, I mean, yeah, he, he was always the first choice for the book. Like mm-hmm. we, we've been developing it for a while together. And then 2008, he was like, "Hey, um, do you do, do you have anything that could work for an all ages audience?" And I'm like, uh, "Yeah." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we pulled this out, and like I brought Ed to 2008. It was his first 2008 work. He does a lot of work for the French market, as you can tell by the by the uh, re- refinement of his line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He also yeah. did a chapter of, of, of Maddie, my book with Duncan Jones. Um, he's just a nice guy. Like I've known him forever. You know, he's a, he's really good at drawing like different characters and making them interesting, mm-hmm. um, visually interesting. And, and he has a really unusual eye for like designing spaceships and stuff like that. So it, it looks like something... It, 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 it's fun to give Ed a big world to play with because his imagination is so great that he can, he'll just like, he'll, he'll, he'll come back with something that doesn't, that looks amazing and not like anything else, but in a welcoming way, you know, it's not like, Oh, well, this is, this is so weird or, you know, that, that I can't, I can't like understand it or like, I don't feel good about this. It's like, oh, well, this just feels like it feels like it's always existed like this. It's it's fine. I like this. This feels like something I'm stumbling onto that has has existed for a while. Um, How do you communicate? Do you usually communicate over text or are you on the phone or? Usually email like a lot like most of most of my work with um, all of the artists I work with. um, We do over email. I mean, Ed's in Spain. Um, You know, he's got family he's got young children i do too so we you know asynchronous communication works really great because people can get to it when they when they Mm -hmm. when it's right for them um but usually like throughout my projects what we kind of do now is we set up a project dropbox and the script goes in there and that way i can keep tweaking the script because i am that person Mm -hmm. um like not major changes but you know i mean yeah i love it I, i i have been I did add two pages to to, to, to to Pad Karma like yesterday, just as Ryan was getting to them. So I'm like, I rushed this. And he's like, yeah, you did. <laughs> we, we discussed these things. I'm like, hey, Ryan, would you mind if I did this? Because I think I, I didn't script this very well. And he's like, no, that sounds good. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so we we kind of had these very like calm, mature discussions about things, um, and that's throughout my projects. You know, we put the script there so that. It, they always have the most up-to-date version of the script. All the character designs go there and then layouts and, and pages and then I put the letters in there. So like we have a central place where we can, can communicate and everything is always up-to-date and then the rest of it we do on email um, and if it's like a really quick thing, maybe a DM. You know, mm. DMs are kind of like, this will take me once, this is a yes or no question or like a, a by the way, if you check the Dropbox, I put something in there for you to look at. You know, email is for like let's go through these layouts and, and, and talk about them. Mm-hmm. So when you're like envisioning full tilt boogie in your head, I'm sure you have an idea of what it's going to end up looking like. You, you know, you know, you're going to be collaborating with Ed and, and so you have some idea of how, yeah. what style and uh, ca- what the characters will look like, but. Uh, he designed he, the characters very early on. So like okay. when I was writing them, I, I imagined them in my head. Oh, okay. Um, All right. Well that, that answers that question. So I like wrote the first 10 pages and then, and then he did character design, mm. um, and then we actually rewrote it for 2008 because it was a little too bloody for 2008. Um, <laughs> but we had those character designs. I mean, 
the all age it wasn't originally meant to be an all ages book, but it was very easy to change it to become mm. one. Um, and it made it made us have some interesting, like it, it dictated some of the story choices, like the like the robot bears um, and and the bubble gum guns, um, because we're like, well, we need an action thing to happen, but we also need nobody to get permanently hurt. Um, so that was that that was fun. Like sometimes the format of something pushes you a little bit as a creator, and, and, and in a good way, you know. Mm. I, I mean, like those borrower bears. They're my new mascots for our Patreon. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I need to send them out for us. Like, yes, bes- yes. like uh, I always find the terms like young readers or all ages like so, so interesting because generally we think of it in terms of like what it's not like. Well, it's not a lot of blood and it's not boobs, boob to no boobs. But um, yeah. like what what do you include to make something an all ages or young readers comic. Um, I mean, I'm working. Um, this is this is a particularly apt question because I'm working on not one but two middle grade pitches right now, mm. um, and I have a ten year old daughter. So, like, you know, I know I know exactly what she reads mm-hmm. um, and what amuses her and what she finds interesting in a story. Um, so she she's my test audience. I'll often be like, "Honey, what do you think of this?" Yeah. Um, and uh, so she and she lets me know. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I think, you know, fr- stories of friendship um, are quite important for young readers. Uh, like, kids like big adventure. They like fantasy. They like science fiction. They like, you know, they like, I mean, tea is automatically like a, a young reader friendly heroine because she's a teenager. Because teenagers, like, kids dream of independence and having, you know, and, and the idea of, like, being a teenager who has your own spaceship, her own spaceship but still has some kind of like family framework around her mm-hmm. um, and can go where she wants and spawns and, and do what she wants um, is, is kind of very appealing. Um, and so, you know, I also weave in ideas of fandom with Prince Ethan and his like fangirls yeah. um, and responsibility and like not necessarily trusting the adults who are telling you what to do. Um, uh, and, and the cat, you know, cat is cat is great. Yes, um, Horace is great. Horace is actually based on an old Michael Moorcock idea from one of his really? Eternal Champion books. Yeah, the um, Dancers at the End of Time, the one that nobody likes except me. I think he wrote in the weekend while like, like just no comment, man. no speed. comment. <laughs> <laughs> talking to Duncan last night over DM and we were both like we we both have read like every trashy 70s and 60s sci-fi and fantasy book like like just name the really trash authors and like I'm like I have I used to have all those books like Piers Anthony yep every single fucking one oh, <laughs> um, you know like Anne McCaffrey like you know Stainless Steel Rat like Faster than the Grey Mouse or like you know just, just like the good stuff, which um, is all like horribly misogynistic, mostly. Yeah. <laughs> like going back and reading some of that, it's like, mm, yeah, that was that was that was not my best choice. But, <laughs> but um, you know, so so yeah, I mean, I, I, like, I just want I want to tell a story that's about kids making decisions and 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 facing choices, but also and and, and is a fantasy. Um, an escapist fantasy, as a lot of these things are, but it's also you know there are also real emotional moments in it. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to have, and that's another thing that I've taken out of 
Japanese comics that American comics is less good at sometimes because it focuses more on the bang bang mm-hmm. um, is the is a, the strong emotional arcs like you know like I like I love manga that will absolutely ruin me emotionally um, all the, like and and it'll often happen very suddenly like there'll be this action scene and then they'll do this character twist they'll be like I hate you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I think the book that's doing that to me right now is, is Witch Hat Atelier, which is amazing, and you should just go buy it. Oh. Just, it's so good. Seven volumes. They are in print. Witch Hat Atelier. It's a, it's a it's it's about a um, it, it's about witchcraft as a metaphor for creativity, um, and you know it, it's the usual like so. If I tell you it's about like four little girls who are who are in training to become witches, it sounds really boring, but it's it's. It's both incredibly emotional. It's incredibly emotionally real. It has some of the best disabled characters you'll ever read in comics. Um, he comes later. He's amazing, um, and um, and it's it's like it's it's hardcore. Like it's still a YA, it's still a young readers book, but some of the stuff emotionally that they put you through without killing any characters or like showing blood or something like that. Some of the choices these kids are making about like whether to go to the dark side for a good result or not is like, it's just incredibly real. Um, and about grownups not taking care of children and, you know, in, in, or not taking the care they should of people they're responsible for, you know, it's all incredibly real and it's beautiful. And some of the, 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 the landscape designs and the character designs are just breathtaking. Like it's just serious gold. Um, I can't stop talking about that book. Um, <laughs> and so that's, you know, that, that's sort of what I was trying to do with Full Tilt Boogie, although I, when I wrote the first arc of Full Tilt Boogie, I hadn't, I hadn't discovered which hat yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very close metaphor for what I was trying to do in terms of having really original, interesting, fun ideas grounded in, like, and big ideas too, like, but grounded in an emotional reality so that you, you, you understood the choices these the difficulties these characters are facing. I mean, you know, T's constant lack of money and getting stiffed on jobs mm-hmm. is, you know, is is just extremely real. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, what I love in a young reader's book, just putting it out there, is any <laughs> two people kissing. So I'm hoping that that will be coming up in the full tilt boogie universe. Just putting that out. There. Um. I mean, they're like, I haven't set up any romances. I mean, there's, there's actually, there, actually the arc two is, there's a new secondary character. Like arc two, like the fun, the fun thing about having a world that big, but also the weird thing is like, you know, you set up all of these characters and then you take like maybe 60% of them to, into the second arc mm. and then some of them return in the third arc. Like it's, you know, it's a bit like, I'm sure like Brian Face while he was writing Saga is just, you know, you're constantly introducing these cool people and then be going, oh, yeah, we're done with them now. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the reader's like, oh, I hope that guy yeah. comes back because he was really neat. Um, but in the second arc, there's definitely a, 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 a really lovely romantic element. And, I th- and there are two characters that I think are going to have a relationship. I um, hope it's Grandma and Horace. Fingers are crossed. I want I want to see that <laughs> ghost, man, ghost man slash computer AI, kiss. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think they I think they become very close friends. I'm not sure there's a romance romance there, but they definitely they definitely are are, are, are close friends. Okay, that um, will have to be my slash fiction then. So there you go. Do you um, imagine think, uh, like is it is the plan for Phil Tilt Boogie to be a a three 
story arc? Like how, how long is this thing going to be? I don't know. Hopefully forever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, arc two has a lot of like wild stuff that happens in it. And then it sets up kind of the next one or two arcs. I mean, I'm going to keep writing it as long as, I feel I have a story to tell, and as long as 2080 will have me, and I'll hopefully like make it more frequent than the rather spaced out. This um, this past this past year is has been an absolute disaster in terms of my workload. So that's why um, that's why it didn't happen as quickly as it did. Though I'm really really happy with the second arc I wrote. Um, so I'm, you know, maybe maybe it was just fated to be that it had to take this long for it to come around on my schedule, and that it was this story, and it's a good story. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, as always, the second arc takes on a lot of um, influences from across science fiction and stuff. I mean, I think you know, <laughs> like I said arc one was like Michael Moorcock and like classic anime and. You know, and Stitch, natural combinations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Arc Two pulls in some stuff from Stalker. Um, Mm. I'm a huge Russian and Polish sci-fi fan, so you know, the Strugatskys and and Stanislaw Lemmerd are like huge, huge influences on me. So we're going to let you go here in a second, but I, I, I couldn't say goodbye without talking briefly about Dracula motherfucker, one of our favorite books from last year and a book sort of like what you're talking about, where it just flew. Like you, you raced through that comic and when you got done, you wanted more. Is there a possibility that there's a follow-up to that story in the future? Perhaps. I mean, I haven't, Erica and I are working on another project. Oh, Um, cool. I mean, like, Dracula Motherfucker was all was 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 lit, like I feel terrible saying this, but it is a book I just I dashed off <laughs> in between finishing large books. I hate um, you. I write. You know, <laughs> I've I've always written exploitation horror as a way of chilling out between big projects because mm-hmm. like my brain just naturally lives in like making up bad taglines for exploitation horror movies. Um, I mean, I did you know the entire Dark Horse Grindhouse series and. Mm. An Archie versus Predator, um, which was was an Archie versus Predator too, which was really fun because they were like, "Can you do the same thing over again?" And I'm like, "No, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I do something else now." Um, and you know, I think I think one of the most useful things to do, like you know, you shouldn't be afraid of emotion while writing. Like I wrote, I wrote, I wrote Dracula Motherfucker angry. Mm-hmm. I was I was just like I mean I think you can feel you can the, the the anger in that book um, about a whole bunch of stuff and um, you know it was always meant to be something that Erica and I could do between other projects and it was meant to be that seventy two page little image hardback it was written for that format because I love that format so much it's you know. A sh- essentially a novella, but you can sell it in bookstores. It racks fine out well. Like it's 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 nice to hold. It smells good. Um, mm-hmm. And um, so I you know I owe Ed Brubaker and and and, and Sean Phillips for that. Um, uh, you know, that was another one where uh, I also came with an absolute aesthetic for it. I mean, if you read the back matter. Um, and Erica and I have always been friends and we love the same trash horror movies and I can reference like striptease in it. And she's like, I absolutely know what you're talking about. <laughs> um, 
<laughs> and uh, so I, I, I came in and was like, oh, well, you know, do you remember helping and like this and that, and, like Pride and FMA Brotherhood, and, like this is how we're going to portray Dracula because I have all sorts of feelings about Dracula and, and he should not be in a moldy old tuxedo with a cake because mm. he just looks not scary at all. He just looks like someone's dad and he looks like he smells <laughs> like mothballs. Um, so part of this story was like make Dracula scary again. So again, this was this was just me looking meta at the adaptation of Dracula stories and where I felt that they had increasingly fallen short. Um, you know, I think it's very tiresome to bring Dracula from one from being like an 18th century Gothic, sorry, 19th century Gothic story into another old Gothic city. So like putting Dracula in London is tired and broke because it, it automatically refers back to a past which is no longer scary in present day. Um, putting Dracula in Los Angeles for me felt very scary because Los Angeles, I find to be an incredibly isolating city. You know, you're in your car all the time. You don't really walk places. There are all these spaces where there's just nothing and shadow. Um, and so that for me was, was, was a scary place to put something, someone who is essentially an urban predator, um, and an urban predator is generally specifically against women. Hmm. Um, and so that's that was the foundation of it. And and Erica just brought this amazingly. Erica and I talked about color influences and and, and Jalo films and stuff like that. And then she just went for it. It was so good. I mean, it's um, it's like I said, one of my favorites. I think it's a masterpiece. Uh, you know, it takes that story to another level by the end. And I just I just want to know what happens on that next page personally. Uh, so I do have my fingers crossed that we get that in the future. Well, I mean, every 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 horror story, like every great horror story, yeah. ends like it's not really over. Like you have not escaped the monster. Mm. The yeah. monster is within you. You know. Yeah. Um, so that was. I mean, I think a lot of it helps that I letter my own books, so um, I can go back and fit the dialogue and and everything to the art in a way that not everybody else can because very few writers really do good lettering scripts mm-hmm. um, or they, you know, they screw their letter around by changing things once it's lettered. <laughs> um, and that is bad and unprofessional. Um, so, and the other weird thing is I feel like I'm very, the, the, the fashion right now in comics writing seems to be stories with a ton of captions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do almost none of that. So naturally my work feels a little bit different because it's being told via characterization and via visuals rather than via narration. Um, though saying that, like, True War Stories had a ton of stories that were all captions because it, it was literally story, soldiers narrating their own stories. So, you know, so here I am saying, oh, I don't ever use captions. And, <laughs> and then there's an entire 260-page book where it's like, here's here's... 12, 13, 14, 15 stories with, you know, that are mostly captions. Yeah, mm. well, you contain multitudes. Yeah, so you're exception allowed to. proves the rule. Yeah, right? I do. Yeah. I do. Uh, yeah. Alex, for our listeners, where can they find you online if they want to track you down, find your works, talk to you? Uh, I'm almost everywhere on, on social media as at Alex DeCampi, um, A L E X D E C A M P I. Um, and yeah, like, come talk to me. And look at nice pictures stuff. of her dogs. And get pictures of my dogs. <laughs> my foster dog's going to his new home today. So oh, congratulations. I'm very happy about that. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. You gave us more time than we even asked for. Really, really appreciate it. It's been a joy. We hope you can come back in the future. Yeah. Would love to. I, I had an absolute blast. So Yay. thank Yay. you. <laughs> 
Whenever we finish these creative corners, I always think about like the uh, Wayne's World. Like, <laughs> That's I feel our Transformers like, transition. <laughs> I feel like I've um, now I feel nostalgia for the conversation you guys have just heard. And there's so much in it that I feel like I'm still thinking about. Mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. one of the the topics that we covered lightly that is on my mind is like, what is YA? And mm. why does a publisher like 2000 AD now feel the compulsion to put out YA comics? And I do think that there is more to them than there's no graphic, graphic violence. There's no graphic sexual whatever. Like there is some, because adults are reading it too. Sure, yeah. And um, I I like the fact that when I asked Alex DeCampi the question of like what what is YA, it's it was something that was ineffable to her as well. Like mm-hmm. I I think that it's like an but I do feel it in full tilt boogie whatever the YA magic is, and I think that it's something like it's like an optimism, it's an aspirational mm-hmm. aspect. Mm-hmm. I, I you know that's it's interesting. I do think that YA has become a genre in the marketers' minds, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, the stores' minds. We come from a Barnes & Noble background. You know, mm-hmm. we worked many, many years in retail, book retail specifically. And, you know, young adult is a section, but young adult is not a genre, right? Right. Comic books are not a genre. They're, you know, it's a type of storytelling. It's a medium. So while I agree that when you explore young adult, you do tend to get a vibe, especially in a post Harry Potter, Twilight, Hunger Games universe that we currently live in. Uh, but for me, what is young adult to me is a little more basic of not graphic mm-hmm. sexuality, <laughs> not graphic violence. I think there's more to it because because. Mm. Um, if it was just like an MPAA style rating system, I don't think that adults would be flocking to it like they do. Yeah. I think that that ineffable, hip, optimistic, colorful thing is what what is attracting people. And I think that um, it's, I think there's more to it than marketing. I mm. think there's a magic to it. I think that there is a mindset, mm. a growth mindset inherent in YA media. And, and you might be right, and you've read more YA than I have. Uh, I, I, I tend to, but I, I keep going back to like my dad when I was a kid, and he'd be like, here's, you know, Okay, he's canceled now for good reason. Uh, mm-hmm. But Bill Cosby, right? Bill Cosby, no profanity. He's just smart. He knows how to tell a joke, and he doesn't need the crutch of language. And I think about my dad saying that to me all the time, and I would give him a big eye roll when it comes to a book like Full Tilt Boogie. Like, it is incredibly impressive, and you don't even notice that it is a teen book. Like, I, like it has a younger protagonist Mm -hmm. uh but it doesn't feel like a teen book to me like i had to like remind myself after reading it or during the conversation that we had with alex that it was a teen book but i still think you're you're in the mindset of what ya is not and i'm more intrigued by what ya is Mm. like you're going like this doesn't feel like a teen book i'm saying it does and it's 
like awesome. Yeah, and and yeah, and again, I you know I have not explored as much YA as a lot of people, and so maybe I should. Maybe I'm missing out. But I think that you're discounting things that you have read that are YA. Mm, Like all of those first, second books that we love and we included on our end of the year. And and like, you know, the Spider-Man comics that I read are YA. Yeah, 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 okay. All right, all right, all right, all right. Yeah, Um, okay. I I think what I need to do is switch to this idea that you're uh, percolating on right now of what is YA? What, what do you need to tell a YA story? And once I put my finger on what YA is, we'll make millions, I tell you, millions. <laughs> I, I think you should filter that back into your creative brain that you're having so much fun with right now. We've been flirting around doing our own little web comics, I, you know? Like, yeah. Yeah, that's a very vulnerable thing to put out there, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, it may or may not happen. It may may, may or may not happen this year or next year or whatever, but it's something that we have been talking about a lot. That's right. And just because our hands are not on the project right now doesn't mean that it's not still in the universe moving forward. That's right. Thank you, Alex DeCampi. But what is coming into fruition next week is the start of of our Fantastic Four series with Sue and Reed. Yeah, all right, Sue and Reed. And we are going to start at the very beginning with Fantastic Four's numbers one through six by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, the very birth of the Marvel Comics universe. I am excited. Me too. I've already started tabbing away. I think that there is a lot of relationship material there, even in these early comics, which I will say are a bit cheesy. I mean, they're weird. Mm -hmm. They're really weird. And not only is it the beginning of the Fantastic Four, it's the beginning of the Mole Man. Name, well, it's not the beginning of Namor the Submariner, but it's like, the reinvention of Namor the Submariner. Uh, we also get Doctor Doom for the first time. We get the Scrolls for the first time. This is wild science fiction, monster fiction. And it, it, it's the, the Marvel Universe you see in these early books, books that I thought I had read, but guess what? Turns out I had not. But these early building blocks, they feel like Marvel, but they also don't feel like Marvel. So it's been this interesting discovery process for a a guy like me who thought they knew and understood the building blocks of my favorite comic book universe. Our love expert is Gretchen Rubin, who is the love expert I was reading when we came up with the concept of comic book couples counseling. We've used her as a love expert in the past on one of our one-offs. Now we're going to actually engage with one of her books that covers one of her most inspired concepts, The Four Tendencies. And we're going to be focusing on Sue and Reed, but the four tendencies can be applied to the entire Fantastic Four team. Yeah, all right. So I want you guys to get excited. We're going to do four episodes on the Fantastic Four. We haven't decided what all those arcs are going to be. So if you have your favorite Sue and Reed storylines, please send them to us. We are considering everything from 1961 to 2021. So send us those stories. We want to talk about them. We want to consider them for these four episodes. And guess what? 
We're still not done with Creator Corners. We do have one coming up in the middle of May with Jordan Morris of Jordan Jesse Go. He is adapting his podcast series Bubble into a graphic novel from First Second Books. We've we've got an advanced reader copy of it. It's a wild comic. It's an incredibly strange comic. And I'm excited to chat with Jordan Morris. Also, Jordan Morris on Comic Book Couples Counseling. How fun is that? How did that happen? Lisa made it happen. Thank you, Lisa. So, all right. Uh, anything else we got to cover before we get out of here? I think all we got to talk about is where our listeners can send their words of affirmation to you. Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, send them over to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. Oh, yeah. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes and a long cut of this conversation with oh, Alex that's DeCampi. right. A director's cut. You thought this chat was long? Guess what? It's even longer. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com, or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts, and if you'd like to do an act of service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. Doopy doopy.